Thanks for listening to one of our Sunday messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 9.15 and 10.45 a.m. To find out more about our church or to connect with any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you follow Jesus. So today is a little bit different. Today, at the end of the teaching, we want to take communion in our houses with our people or maybe by yourself. So at the beginning, right now, so we don't have to break it up later, we want you to take some time and go find some communion elements in your house. It doesn't have to be bread and juice or bread and wine, but if you need an excuse to drink wine at 10 a.m., then hey, go for it and blame the church. Um, But go and find some bread somewhere. I've I've heard of people doing it before with goldfish and Dr. Pepper, even though I don't think anything good comes from Dr. Pepper. Uh, But we want to take communion. And, And the purpose of communion isn't about the specific elements. It's a reminder of what Jesus did for us. And so We're going to give you three minutes, if you're on Facebook Live, hopefully that's enough time, to go and find some communion stuff so we can use it later on. And and if you're at home, you can just pause this thing and skip forward uh, to the part where we move on past this three-minute section. the last week in our series on the presence of God that we've called alive. And what we've done since Easter is really track the idea of God's presence being present with his people. And and we've done that by looking at the resurrection appearances of Jesus to his followers. And what we've seen is really great. We've seen that Jesus, the presence of God, shows up in our grief, if you want to talk about Mary Magdalene, shows up in our pain, if you want to talk about... um, Peter, for example, or our failure or our strength, or maybe even like last week, we talked about how the presence of God shows up in our doubt. And the presence of God in those moments changes things, grief to joy, doubt to deepening relationships with him and of our faith. And we talk about how the presence of God has an ability and does transform our present. And so when Jesus died and rose again, when he, when he gave us access to the presence of God, unadulterated, All the time, it changes our every day. And today, what I want to do is just talk a little bit big picture about how we relate to the presence of God. I want to talk about, as we end the series, how we see the presence of God in our every day. Because I I think that sometimes we miss the big idea of what the presence of God is in our world and where we find it. Uh, There's an article, we do Facebook Lives every Wednesday at 2 p.m. when I can get Facebook to work. And sometimes that's... (laughs) harder than um, other times. 
And this last week, I referenced an article from Babylon Bee, which is a church satire website that I, I enjoy. It makes me chuckle. It just makes fun of the things that, that probably we should make fun of in the Christian community. And there was one article I referenced, and we'll drop it in the comment section on the Facebook watch party, but it just talks about how um, that the power of God wanted to come into the church, but it, it, stick, it stuck in the foyer because the worship pastor hadn't invited in the Holy Spirit yet, you know? And it, it really hits on on this idea of how we relate to the presence of God. And I hear people teach and think about like Matthew 18, for example. It's a verse in, in which Jesus is talking and, and he says, hey, when two or three of you are gathered, I'll be with you. And, and so sometimes we think that if it's just us in our closet praying or in our bedroom praying, we need two or three people to guarantee that God's presence is with us. And, and really, that's not what that passage is talking about at all. That passage is talking about church discipline because it's hard. It's not talking about the presence of God. It's talking about the wisdom of God in the tough moments. And I remember one time I was on a mission trip in Arizona. And um, we had a worship night. And I remember there's this moment. We're singing a couple songs. And there's this one song that we sang. And all of a sudden, all of a sudden, like this wind blew lightly. And when you're in the desert in Arizona, that, that's a beautiful thing. And, and, and as the wind blew, I just, I just felt the presence of God in that moment. You've probably had those moments when you feel the presence of God from one moment to the next. And I thought in that moment, what changed? Like, why now? What did I do that ushered in God's presence to this moment? How do we invite God's presence into certain moments? And I'm a baseball player, was a baseball player, and I'm a superstitious kid. And, and so then we get into this idea of how can we invite God into our life? And I don't know if that's the right way to think about the presence of God. And so I want to take today... And hopefully it's a shorter day because I want you to spend some time with communion. And, and I want to see a theme as we talk about the, the presence of God as seen through the Trinity. When God manifests himself as God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in the Scripture. And I want to talk about how people saw and missed the presence of God and find a theme throughout the whole thing. But before we get into that, every week at Crossroads we take time to pray right before we talk about the text. Because we don't want to be critics of the teaching. We want to be contributors to God's conversation. And what that means is we believe that today, right here, right now, God's presence is going to do something in your present. He's going to use the Holy Spirit to transform your spirit into the image of Jesus. And, and we want to be ready for that. And so take some time right now and pray with the people around you or pray to yourself that God might speak to you that God might begin to change you, that you might see how the Holy Spirit is shaping you into the image of Jesus, the influence of Jesus this morning as we open the Word of God. Okay, so if you look at the bigger picture of the presence of God in the Bible, there's a couple verses that, that really just stand out. And one of the first ones is one of my favorite verses. I used to teach it all the time, and, and uh, old staff members would tell me that I go there too much. But it's the Bible. Can you really go there too much? And then they couldn't respond to that at all. Uh, but it's, it's, it's in Exodus 3. And what happens in Exodus 3 is God gives his people his proper name that they use for the rest of the Bible. But to understand what's going on there and the gravity of what's going on there, you've got to understand what names meant in the Old Testament. Names weren't just names. When God 
gave people names and when he changed people's names and when people called God names, it wasn't simply because it was trending or because it was in the top 20 list of adorable names for 2020, right? Names meant something more than just a title. They meant significance and purpose. And we see it all throughout the Old Testament. I, I remember uh, growing up, my grandmother had on her wall on the farm in Iowa, she had all of our pictures of her 20-some-odd grandkids, and she had their name and then what their name meant. And next to mine, it said Charles, and then it said Strong Manly. So you can see how it makes sense. <laughs> but, but really, um, in the Old Testament, we have precedent for this. So people would call out to God, and they would respond to God, helping them, saving them, speaking to them with the characteristic they saw of God. A couple interesting places to see it, pretty clear places. Uh, Genesis 16 is one. Genesis 16, you have a woman who gets cast out of her house, um, Hagar, and, and Abraham says, you have to leave because my wife's not okay with you staying. And, and so she runs away with a kid in the middle of the desert. And it's a tough place to be. Not a whole lot of, of opportunity for women with small kids or pregnant with no husband in that day and age. And there wasn't a whole lot on the upside. It looked a lot like death. And God meets her there and says, I'm going to provide for you and I'm going to give you a purpose and I'm going to make your child a, a name that lives on. I'm going to give you guys um, a family. And so Hagar in that moment says, Abraham, sorry, she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You're a God who sees, right? And what she says, you're a God who sees there. The, the original language is El Roi, El being deity and Roi being the God who sees me. So what she says there is literally, you are, and then gives God a name that meant what he did. We see the same thing in Genesis 22, a story we referenced a couple weeks ago. The story of Abraham and his son Isaac foreshadowing the sacrifice of Jesus. So they go up to the top of the mountain, and instead of sacrificing his son, God says, I provided something for you. And in that moment, Abraham called the name of the place, the Lord will provide, as it is to this day. And that phrase, the Lord will provide, is Jehovah Jireh, or God will provide. So different people called God different names in the Old Testament that, that were based on what he did for them, what he promised to do in and through them. And so in Exodus 3, let me set the stage, you see a bit of, of kind of God introducing himself to his people all over again. But this time was different. Exodus 3, if you don't know the story, is the people of God had been enslaved for 400 years to the Egyptians. They went there peaceably to flourish with Joseph. And by the time Moses gets on the scene, it had been a long time since they'd flourished and they'd become slaves to the Egyptians. And they'd cried out for 400 years. God, help me. God, save me. God, please step in here. And so this story, very popular one, is about God showing up to Moses. And he does it in a burning bush. And God says to Moses, you are going to go deliver my people. I've seen their affliction, and I've decided to act right now. You're going to go. And Moses looks at God, and he says, in the burning bush, he says to God, if I go, the Israelites will ask me, um, who sent you? And, and he actually, I'm going to quote it, he says, If I go to the Israelites and tell them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what's his name, what should I say? And what they're asking for isn't just literally the name of God there. What he's asking for is, what should I say the purpose is behind me going? What kind of significance are you bringing them in that moment? One theologian said, the question contains both a request for information and an explanation of its significance. There are two aspects of the one question. Clearly, the people want to know more about God's intention. By requesting his name, they seek to learn his new relationship to them. 
Formerly, he related to them as God of the fathers. What will he be to Israel now? And so God responds in verse 14. And this is one of the key texts in the Old Testament. In verse 14, God said to Moses, I am that I am. And he said, you must tell this to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. So that, that phrase is different. If I'm giving you a name, you're not going to say, what's your name? I am that I am. That sounds really weird. And so to understand it, you got to do a little digging in the original text. And to do that, uh, I talked to our good friend at CBC. He's an intern here. He knows more languages than anybody else combined on staff. He studies languages and semantics and Hebrew and Greek and all the things, man. He's really impressive. His name's Britt Owsley. And so I chatted with him just for a couple minutes on what this means in the Hebrew and, and what it's saying about the character of God. So listen to our conversation, and then we'll see you back here in just a sec. All right, Britt, man, thanks for joining me today. Of course. Yeah, good to see you. Do you see, do you see all my books? See my book, It's So Smart I Am? I do. You books? look very educated. They never stop. They just go on for days. So I brought you here to talk about something. Um, you know, so we're in the middle of, of talking about Exodus 3.14. And it's really a, a watershed moment in how we see God throughout the rest of the Old Testament and how he related to his people. Um, and, and so I guess... As we talk about Exodus 3.14, the first thing I want to know is, how many languages do you know? <laughs> well, in college, and I'm now in seminary, I've studied uh, Greek, Hebrew, and Latin. Those are my three <laughs> strong ones. Um, of course. I've dabbled in some other ones, but those are, those well, are my what, three. What do you mean you've dabbled in some other ones? So, like, other people, when they have free time, you know, like a, a summer off from school or whatever, they go swim i don't know i check out the library to learn a new language uh so I've, I've learned a little bit of hittite a little bit of sumerian some akkadian some ancient egyptian some russian and german actually uh, right yeah i like to dabble right that that is that is that is fantastic man yeah um that's because that's what we all do for fun you know i mean why get in a pool when you could learn ancient languages hey so but also you know no, I think I think it's really I think it's really cool. So when we talk about the the Bible, um, just to kind of set the standard, we know it was written in different languages than English, right? So New Testament Greek, Old Testament mostly Hebrew and some Aramaic. So tell me, why do we study the original languages? What kind of nuance do they bring out um, that maybe we we might not find just by reading the translations of it? Right. So when we study the original languages, we're acknowledging that God, when He inspired the different biblical authors to bring us a biblical text. He was using those specific languages and he could have used any languages, but he used these. And so we want to get to know them. And while not everybody needs to know them uh, because we have really good, faithful translations into English. One thing that happens is English changes over time. We're not speaking the same language that Beowulf was speaking. We're not speaking the same language that Shakespeare was speaking. And right. like the King James Bible, which was translated right around the same time as Shakespeare, was an update. It was an attempt to bring English closer to what it was in the present at that time. And yeah. King James and other versions have been updated since then. Yeah. So like we we want to every time we come back to the text always be aware our languages are changing as we're looking at a text that doesn't. And so we want to yeah. make sure we're bringing into the present the exact meaning that God intends. And translations are really good at doing that, but that's why you hear yeah. people like me say, "Well, in the Greek like what we're really doing is we're adding our own little nuance because we've studied just a little bit deeper and know, you know, for me personally, I would want to say that Greek word this way or that Hebrew word right. in another way. 
what kind of what kind of nuance do you find in the original language that sometimes maybe we we get overlooked in in the in the translations? Like, what what does that look like? How, how does that feel for us? Yeah, so uh, I sometimes like to describe it almost like icing on a cake. Like I get a little bit more icing, but everybody still gets the cake. Um, yeah. We're still getting the word of God in these translations, but sometimes sure. I'm studying. Um, I'm I'm getting a little bit more insight into the culture, and that's that's part of what translating uh, really requires. But also just like learning about these languages really requires is getting cultural education and background. And so an example I like is if I'm going to translate a sentence um, like my dad and I were eating bluebell, like I'm talking about the ice cream. Um, but if I'm going to translate that, do I translate a bell that is blue? Probably not because I'm talking about a brand of ice cream, but that's right. the name. So do I leave it and say like bluebell ice cream in that other language? Or do I just say ice cream? But now I've that's lost the kind of connotation that bluebell ice cream the favorite of Texans and particularly of my family. So it's like the only ice cream of Texans. If you ask a lot of people, right? Yeah, if you're a student good. of Texan culture, you know that, you know, that Bluebell is like favorite for Texans, but that's not necessarily needed to understand that sentence. And yeah. so translators are constantly doing that. How much right. do we use like the exact words that they were using and how much do we make sure that the modern reader can understand it? And people like me, learning the original languages can kind of see the bridges between it. And right. um, I mean, it's fun for me, yeah. but it's yeah. also valuable uh, just to be able to kind of, but a thing that often will happen for people who don't study these languages that you can do is just looking at different translations because that's yeah. this group that's of scholars versus that group of scholars kind of take and there's a little more nuance. And so I always recommend if you want to know more about Bible, just read it in a couple different versions and kind of look at them and and ask questions. That's really good. Yeah, I think it's a really good practice to do to do as well to get out of just the like the NASB or the NIV and go to the NLT or go to the Net Bible or you know the different ones and see the different translations because they all talk about the truth, but there's some nuance there that's different. Absolutely. Um, all right, let's get into the text a little bit. So Moses gets this statement from God. It's we're talking about names of God, and it's the name of God that's going to be used for the rest of the Old Testament um, overwhelmingly. And he says to Moses, when Moses says, who am I supposed to say that sent me? He says, tell them, I am that I am, right? This statement in the Hebrew. And so clearly I could explain what this means because look at all my books. Right? <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but we've talked about it before and, and you know Hebrew really well. So I'll just ask you, what, what does that statement mean? What's trying to be um, communicated when God says, tell them I am that I am? Yeah. So uh, the, the phrase in Hebrew is Ehya, Esher, Ehya. Um, and it's, it's basically, I exist as the one who exists. And so it's a sort of emphatic statement about these, this, this person who exists, but that's all he's really saying. He's not really supplying anything more uh, other than there's this eternality. So like one thing that is with this sort of Hebrew tense, uh, it's not even really called a tense, but that's the best way to kind of explain it right now is yeah. is the present tense. So in English, we've got the future, we've got the present, we've got the past. And this is a present tense. But for Hebrew, the present tense can also extend into the future. So he's yeah. saying, I am who I am. But he's also saying, I will be who I will be. There's a lastingness to this. There's an unending or uh, it's not finished yet. He's, he's never going to be finished existing. Um, and what he's really doing here is he's saying, I'm the one who exists. I'm the one who's always existed and I'm still existing and I'm going to keep right, existing. Right. And that's my defining quality. 
And it's different than, say, you know, the God of the sun who exists as the sun. That's his defining quality is that he's the sun, he gives light. Or, you know, the, the God of the sea who's powerful and got storms and all this stuff. But like the God of the Bible, the God who's revealing himself to Moses, he's the God that exists. He's the one that don't, he's the only one that exists. And he's the source of all other things that exist. Yeah, I think it's really good. I love um, I love the present tense nature of this. So again, he says to Abraham, Moses says to him, hey, what am I going to say when they ask me who's sending me and what that says about who's sending me? And God's response is tell them that I am here, right? Tell them that I will always be there here. I was here and I'm going to be here in the future. Like you said, the eternality of the statement is is really good. I love, you know, we were talking this, what you said about um, about the name. So the name is, is translated, you know, Yahweh, right? And we get that from what, verse 15, right? Right. So in 14, he says, I am who I am. And then he says, like, I tell them I am sent you. But then he immediately changes his mind. He's not really changing his mind. He's, he's clarifying. Um, also tell the Israelites, he is sent you. He is the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He's the one that sent me. And so God changes it from the first person to the third person, because, of course, if we went around saying I am, I am. It almost sound like we're talking about like us being ourselves. Yeah, um, yeah. So God changes yeah. it for us. Uh, so the main name for God in the Bible uh, in the Old Testament is this word Yahweh, often rendered in all caps as the word Lord. Um, yeah, in translation, really it, sure. it, it's a statement about He is. He's the one that exists. He causes other things to exist, and um, we're, you know, He's. It's a it's a statement about how powerful He is, but it's also kind of a statement about Him being the Creator. Yeah, um, at the beginning He said let there be light. But the first word he said is like, let there be like, mm-hmm. it's the same root word. Um, yeah. Other things exist because of the God who exists. I love that. And I think it all centers around this idea of presence um, and being present in all the spaces like past, present, future, like you said, the eternality of God. Um, and it's a really, it's a really beautiful and bold statement that, that, that God gives Moses and that Moses then proclaims. And so every time throughout the old Testament, when they proclaim or they call on the name of God, they're forced to be reminded that that name of God they call on is, is here, is present, right? Like, oh, he is here and he created and he's eternal and he'll always be here, right? It's all about the presence of God and the people of God. So that's really good. And it, it shaped how the Israelite people moving forward saw God and how they related to God. And sometimes they forgot, but that's most of the Old Testament, right? Um, yeah. Man, thanks. I appreciate you chiming in. I, th- I appreciate your wisdom and expertise. You should get some more books behind you because people believe you when you have books behind you. You know that? all right all right man i appreciate it thanks brett see you buddy bye so this moment in exodus between moses and god recalibrated israel's relationship with god and it reminded them of who god was the god who is here who exists who is present past present and future who is always with and so much so that if you read down a couple more verses he says this in exodus 3 he says god says to moses this is my name forever And this is my memorial from generation to generation. This is my memorial from generation to generation. This is what I'm known as. The word Yahweh ascribed to God. That name is used 6,000 times in the scriptures because it is God's proper name. It's how we should know God as the God who is here, who is present. One scholar said, The answer Moses receives is not by any stretch of the imagination a name. It's an assertion of authority. A confession of an essential reality. Another theologian goes on to say, the repetition of the same word I am suggests the idea of uninterrupted continuance and boundless duration with the presence of God. 
I think it's a beautiful picture of who God is in relationship to his people. And he says, if you want one thing to know me by, if you want what I am known by in your world, I'm known by the God who is present all the time. So that's how we deal with the presence of God when we look at God. Let's fast forward a bit to the presence of God seen through the person of God in Jesus. And so Jesus is walking and talking with his disciples. And and in in John chapter 8, we have this really interesting exchange. In John chapter 8, what we see is a bunch of Jewish people who are kind of following Jesus, beginning to question Jesus. And, and Jesus says in verse 30 around there, he says, I'm telling you the things I've seen while I'm with the Father. As for you, practice things that you've heard from the Father. And they answered Jesus. They said, Abraham is our father. Because if you were a good Jew, you knew the song, Father Abraham, for a reason, because he was the beginning of your people. And in a society that's more collective than individual, that mattered. They were defined by the people of Abraham. And so when Jesus says something else is the father, they say, no, 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 Abraham is our father. You couldn't have talked to our father. You're Jesus. And he says in verse 56, Jesus says, Your father Abraham was overjoyed to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. And they replied in verse 57, You are not yet 50 years old. How have you seen Abraham? A couple things. One, he was probably 31. So that's a really big insult. You try calling a 31-year-old 50, okay? Two, um, they couldn't piece together the reality of Jesus with them and the promise of Jesus as God. They couldn't see past Jesus there now, and they couldn't see into what Jesus represented, which was the presence of God with the people of God in bodily form. And here's what blows them away. The next verse. He said, you couldn't have seen Abraham because you're not 50 years old. And Jesus said to them, I tell you the solemn truth, before Abraham came into existence, I am. So again, if you're a good Jew, you don't read that and just think he's saying that I'm here. No, no. He, he literally is quoting Exodus 3.14. And he's saying that he is God like God says, I am God. When he says, go to my people and tell them I am, Jesus is with the people and he's telling them I am. Blows them away. Because that word Yahweh used 6,000 times was used with incredible reverence. Most writers and scholars talk about that they, they use that name so sparingly that by the 6th and 7th century, by the Babylonian exile, they stopped using it almost completely and they subbed in Elohim and Jehovah for the word Yahweh because it carried with them such significance. When you go to write, when they hand copied the Old Testament texts, the scribes that did that, they would literally leave out the vowels in the middle out of reverence. And they would often bathe before the word and after the word Yahweh to show it reverence and significance. And they wouldn't say it out loud, right? They wouldn't say that name of God out loud. And Jesus looks at them all and says that he is, and he uses that name of God. Think about that. One scholar said that as scriptural traditions developed by the time of Jesus, Yahweh was never used by the average Jewish person in any setting, and so filled with sacred power that it was spoken aloud only once a year on the Day of Atonement. Inside the temple when the Holy of Holies and the priest would invoke the name and sprinkle blood upon the mercy seat to atone for sins. So Jesus makes this statement. They say, who are you? And he says, I am. I am the presence of God with the people of God. I am the all-existent one, past, present, future. I am. Big statement. 
And so they do naturally what you do when you feel like somebody has wronged you and your God. Verse 59, it says, They picked up the stones to throw at him, but Jesus was hidden from them, and they went out from the temple area. When they say picked up the stones, it wasn't just they tried to run him off, it's they tried to kill him because they thought he was breaking the law by saying, by taking advantage of, um, of the name of God, by blaspheming God. And what you see and what you saw in the Moses narrative with his people when they say, where is God? And God says, I am here. What you see in this story as well is that God is looking at them in the face and they don't see it. They don't notice the presence of God in their midst. You see it one other place that's pretty pronounced in, in the scripture with Jesus. In Mark 6, Jesus goes back to his hometown. Let me read some text for you. It says in verse 3, um, And what is this wisdom that's been given to him, Jesus? What are these miracles that are done through his hands? They said, Isn't this the carpenter, the son of Mary, brother of James, Judas, and Simon? Aren't those his sisters here with us? And so they took offense at him. Then Jesus said, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own house. You see an example of the people of God not recognizing the presence of God in their present. But he was very much with them. It happened all throughout the life of Christ. So Moses didn't recognize and the Jews didn't recognize that God was already with them. And God says, but this is who I am and how I relate to my people. They didn't recognize the presence of God when Jesus was among them. And finally, let's talk about the third person of the Trinity or the manifestation of God in spirit form, the Holy Spirit. Jesus in the upper room is, is talking to his disciples. And he says to them, I'm going to leave, but I'm going to give you something that's better for you for the next days, weeks, months, years, and millennia to come. He says in verse 15 of chapter 14 in John, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. He says, then I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to be with you forever. Again, we see this, this phraseology of to be with you, to be present with you forever. The spirit of truth whom the world cannot accept because it doesn't see him or know him. But you know it because he resides with you and he will be in you. That word advocate there is commonly referred to when we talk about the Holy Spirit. It's the Greek word paraclete. The first phrase there, para, literally means to come alongside of, to be with, to be near, to be present in. So here's where I want to go with this today. Here's why we built to this point is I think far too often we ask the question, how can we invite God into our spaces or where is God and how can we get God to flood into this place or what can we do to conjure up God's presence in our present? And I think we missed the point. I think we have to understand it's a nuanced view, but the importance of our terminology when we, when we say, how do we invite God into spaces? Because if we think that we invite God into spaces, we have some problems. Firstly, we have a theological problem because we believe that God is omnipresent. God is all places. And if you believe that you have to invite God into places, then he can't be omnipresent and still need to be invited in spaces. Just think about that, right? If we have to invite God in somewhere, it means that he's not already there. So God can't be needed to be invited and at the same time be omnipresent at the same time. So if we feel like if we're trying to pursue or live into the presence of God, that we need to invite God to go along with us, then we've missed the theological construct of a God who is all places because his people are everywhere. We've missed the construct of the omnipresence of God. But building off that, and why I think this is really important, it's because it changes how we think of the presence of God and it changes how we build our relationship around the presence of God. 
So not only do we have a theological problem, which might be a little more ethereal and, and less concrete, we have an authority problem. If we feel like we need to invite God places, we miss the idea that we don't do the inviting God does. We don't get to invite God anywhere because we don't tell God what to do. I'm reminded of so often back in the day when I took trips with, with uh, youth group stuff. We'd go on mission trips or we'd do pick your poison, man. And we'd have a set of rules that kids had to follow. And we um, called them, you know, like the can't do list. And, and we'd go through them all and we'd say, you're not allowed to do this, right? We tried to make it positive. And um, as the leader, I would break those rules. Curfew was a big one. We'd say curfew's at 10, and they'd say, Charlie, you're not going to go to bed at 10. And I would look at them and say, do you not see a difference between me and you? Just answer that question. (laughs) You need to understand right here, right now, there's a very big difference between me and you, and that we are on different playing fields, right? It's an authority issue. If we think we invite God into spaces, then we think that God is waiting for our okay. And let me just tell you, um, God invites us to spaces We don't invite God anywhere because he's omnipresent and because it's an authority issue. But I think it's bigger than that. In verse 25, he continues when talking about the presence of God manifest in the spirit of God for the people of God. He said, I've spoken these things while staying with you. But the advocate, the paraclete, again, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you everything and will cause you to remember everything I said to you. So the the second half, that pair is one, so God is with us all the time, everywhere we go, it says in the text. Secondly, that word cleat, the second half of that phrase means advocate, it means counselor, it means wisdom giver, it means comforter, it means somebody that goes with us that allows us to live into God's ways, in whatever way that looks like in our present moment. It means that he helps us. Not in a way that's subservient, but helps us in a way that's better, right? And so... When we talk about us inviting God into spaces, here I think is the biggest loss. If we think we invite God into spaces, we miss the fact that God's in all the spaces, and we create this divide between what's sacred and of God and what's secular and God hasn't gotten into yet. In one of my favorite books, it's called Gospel in a Pluralist Society, written by Leslie Newbegin, who we quoted a lot last week. He, he constructs something called the plausibility structure, And his main emphasis in the book is that after the Enlightenment, we broke down how we think of things. And you had science on one side, and that was core facts. And you had religion on the other side, and that was beliefs. And science and facts took the front seat in society, and beliefs and faith took a back seat in society. One could be dependent upon, and one couldn't be dependent upon. And it started what we called the, 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 uh, the breakdown of the sacred secular culture, or the difference between the two, which was never intended to be the case by God. He goes on to say, as a result, the gospel becomes only a bus ticket to heaven, and except for some private religious time, has minimal effect on how, on how, Christians, on how many Christians live their lives. So here's the big idea from the presence of God that we've studied over the past six weeks that we see in our text today. As followers of Jesus, as people that live into and live out the presence of God every single day, we don't invite God into our places. We recognize and respond to the presence of God that's already in our lives. And we respond to his invitation to act in accordance with that presence. It's a fundamental difference on how we see the presence of God in our lives. 
And, and it breaks down our authority issues, and it breaks down our theological issues, and more importantly, I think it breaks down our sacred-secular divide issues for me to recognize that there's not a space in my life that God's not already in. Not in my family, and not in my job, and not as a parent, and not at any kind of future sports practices where I have a hard time living out the ways of Jesus when I'm a little competitive. There's not a space in my life that God hasn't already pervaded. There's not a space in my life where God's not already beckoning me to live into his ways and recognize what the presence of God is already doing in that space. It changes how I see the presence of God in my everyday. Paul talks about it in Galatians 5. He says in verse 16 through 18, So I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives, then you won't be doing your sinful nature or your sinful um, cravings of your flesh. The sinful nature wants to do evil, which is the opposite of what the Spirit of God wants. And the Spirit gives us desires that are opposite of what the sinful nature desires. Those two forces are constantly fighting each other, so you are not free to carry out your good intentions. And so what he's saying there is the Spirit of God that goes before you, that was there with you in the past, that's here with you in the present, the very presence of God that's manifest himself in the nature of God, in the name of God, from the Father to the Son to the Holy Spirit, is already with you. Our job as followers is to recognize and respond to the already present presence of God in our every space and every day. That's what he calls us to do. And so the question becomes, how do we do that? If it's not about asking God to come in spaces and recognizing that God's already there, which is beautiful and true and causes me to actually deepen my idea of God's faithfulness, how do we actually recognize it? So let's go back to that story in Arizona, you know? The wind blew and it's one song to the next and all of a sudden I felt the presence of God. And you've got to ask the question, if God's presence was there just as much before I felt it or recognized it and it's there when I did and it will be there after that moment is gone, what are some ways that I can engage and recognize the presence of God in my present every day? And that's where kind of the conversation of spiritual disciplines come into play. Because the move that we're talking about today isn't necessarily from how do I get God to be present in my life, but how do I recognize God's already present presence? And I think disciplines are a way that we do that. Because spiritual disciplines, simply put, are different things or activities or actions that we engage in that create the conditions to more clearly see God in our every moment. Spiritual disciplines create the conditions to more, and to more clearly see God in our every moment. I'm in the desert in Arizona. I had my phone off. There's nothing to look at. We just built a house and talked about the beauty of Jesus all day. Of course, I'm going to see God in that moment because all of my day had been focused on what God had been doing in our community, you know? And so spiritual disciplines help us see the present presence of God all the time. And it looks different for different people. Some, some people say the phrase, like, God showed up when? And what they're saying there isn't that God wasn't present and now he is. What they're saying is now I, I have the attention of the God who was already present. It's what happens in the burning bush. God used the burning bush to show Moses that he was there because Moses didn't recognize it. He, he used the things along the way to show his people that he was always with them. In the Old Testament, as they had moments with God that were great, as they had moments of faith building where God gave them success or victory or land or saved them, they would build stones. They would build these altars of stones. And as they walked by them, and they put them all throughout the land, and as they walked by them, they would tell the story to their kids and grandkids. This is the moment when God did this. This is the moment 
when God did that because it reminded them that God was with them all the time. I found a story out about um, Andrea Herndon. She's on our staff. You probably know her. Uh, man, she, she did this beautiful thing for Christmas for her husband, Mark. They have had an interesting year with jobs and, and leaving some jobs and starting a new company, and they just needed God to provide a lot this year. Um, it hasn't been the easiest of year, but I think if you ask them, they'd say it's been a really like deep year, rich year, not monetarily, but rich just in terms of seeing God in different ways. And for Christmas this year, she actually found a piece of wood and stained and sanded it or got somebody else to do it. Um, she probably is more like me when I say I did something. I mean, I watched somebody do it and took credit. And then she got 12 stones and she stacked them on top of each other and she glued them together and she wrote a Bible verse on the bottom and she gave it to her husband to put in his new office as a sign of God's faithfulness. Right? It's really beautiful. She said he might have cried a little bit when he got it. Because we do these things, we create these disciplines, we create these memories and moments when it causes us to clearly see that God is present in our lives. Because he always is. And so in the Old Testament you see many of these. I, I can talk for a long time on different disciplines that help us do it, whether it's prayer or whether it's fasting or whether it's silence or simplicity or whether it's just being around mountains because you can't not see God if you look at a mountain that's 14,000 feet tall, right? And so we do these spiritual disciplines so we might create places where we more clearly see the already present presence of God in our world. And so, like I said, today we're going to end with communion because that's another rhythm that allows us to recognize the presence of God in our everyday. And so when we talk about communion, I think a couple things are really important to notice. One, um, I love that Jesus, so he's up in the upper room with his disciples and he picks up bread and wine and he says, this is my body and this is my blood. Eat this and remember, drink this and remember. And he picks up bread and wine. These are staples at every meal in the first century. These weren't things you only ate on Easter Sunday once a year. These are things he says, Every time you sit down and eat, remember me. Remember my sacrifice and my promise. And his sacrifice led to the presence of God all the time, the spirit with the people of God. Every time they took communion, they remembered that God was near. They remembered that God loved them. They remembered the sacrifice of Jesus. And so what I'd love to do is for you guys to take communion together as we end. To take communion together as a family or by yourself or with your husband, wife, whatever. And, and simply remember that God is near. That he is presence, and that's a promise that he's given us because that's who he is all the time. And might that be encouraging to you? And then as you end communion, I'd love it if you just read the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, um, 9 through 13, because it talks about the presence of God in that moment and then the promise of the full presence of God to come in the future when Jesus comes back and we get to walk and talk with him again. As we end, let me read to you. Um, what Dallas Willard, an uh, author and writer and teacher and theologian, says about the Lord's Prayer. It says, So when Jesus directs us to pray, Thy kingdom come, he does not mean we should pray for it to come into existence. Rather, we pray for it to take over all points in our personal, social, and political order where it is now excluded. On earth as it is in heaven, with this prayer we are invoking it as in faith we are acting it into the real world of our daily existence. And that's what the presence of God is. <laughs> it's the ongoing presence that goes with us because God's acting, and as followers of Jesus, our job is to call people into what God's already doing in all the spaces that we live into. It's beautiful. It's a joy. It's an encouragement. It's what Paul says when he says, be ambassadors for the good of God because he's calling us into something beautiful. 
So go and take communion right now and have a time of prayer as you read through the Lord's Prayer. And then join us below. There's some discussion where we talk about this a little more and have a group chat about the presence of God in our everyday.